words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you can relate to this. I have a friend who I dialogue with every couple of weeks or so over social media, and we debate the Christian faith. He's an atheist. So far, I haven't persuaded him to change his mind. He hasn't persuaded me either. So when I give him what I think are convincing reasons to believe in Jesus Christ, he dismisses it as wishful thinking. When I talk about how the person of Jesus Christ is compelling to me and how I think the Gospels are credible and give some reasons why I think the Gospels are a credible account of the life of Christ, he dismisses this and he's actually said to me that uh, he said, I think Monty Python's life of Brian is probably more accurate. If you're familiar with that. So there's this great chasm between us. And um, on one side is my belief. On the other side is his persistent unbelief in Jesus Christ. What accounts for that? What contributes to unbelief? How do non-believers, like my friend, our friends, relatives who don't believe, how do non-believers become believers in Jesus Christ and what difference does it make really anyway? Well, this passage from the Gospel of John teaches us about unbelief and it teaches us about belief, the primary reason why people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then it reminds us of why this really matters. And so let's look here what this passage has to say to us about some factors involved in unbelief. Not every factor, but some factors here are revealed um, which cause people to persist in unbelief. Let's look at what Jesus says here at the beginning of this passage. John six thirty five. he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never First, we talked about that last week. Jesus is making the claim here to give ultimate, lasting, eternal satisfaction to anyone who comes to him. If you're hungry to know God, to know truth, to know life, Jesus says there's an open invitation for you. But, verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you still do not believe. Seeing is not always believing. Jesus has already up to this point performed some signs John talks about which testify, which which demonstrate that he is. If not at the beginning, when see people see this, the son of God, they'll realize that he is from God, that he is unique. And the more they see, the more they are with him, they'll realize more and more his identity as the Messiah, the son of God. And God has been doing that work in Jesus Through the Gospel of John, the first sign was the miracle of turning water into wine. And then he healed uh, the son of an official in Capernaum. And then in Jerusalem during the Passover. So there were thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the world in Jerusalem at this time. During the Passover, he healed an invalid who had been um, lame for 38 years. He'd been invalid for 38 years at the Pool of Bethsaida. So surely the people in this crowd had at least heard about these things, if not witnessed them. And then, of course, we know that this is the same crowd that experienced the miracle of Jesus. This is the crowd that was fed by Jesus. Miraculously, the the five loaves and two fish, he fed over 5,000 people. So they had actually experienced and seen for themselves this miracle. Yet, 
Jesus says, you've seen it and you still don't believe in me. What's what's going on? What's going on? What's the problem? Well, I think part of the problem is they they were demanding more evidence, more proof before they would take uh, uh, the next step. Rather than believing in what Jesus has already said and what he's already showed them, they were demanding some level of certainty, almost absolute certainty. Remember last week, uh, they asked Jesus in verse 30, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Well, he had already performed a great miracle, but they want him to perform another one so that they will, they say, believe in him. And so I think here's an ingredient for unbelief or to put it another way. Here's a barrier to belief. That is the demand for more and more proof for evidence that goes beyond what God has already shown. A desire for absolute certainty before commitment. And of course, as Christians, we believe there is proof. There is evidence. There are reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. That's not the issue here. Um, Some people will say, well, when it comes to Christian faith or religion in general, it's about believing without proof, without evidence. And then something like science is a field where you have reasons to believe. So they put they make a distinction between religious faith and other forms of knowledge. But that's not the issue here. Jesus has given them reasons to believe, but they demand more. And so faith is about making a commitment even when you don't have absolute certainty. You have some proof, but you don't have airtight, absolute certainty. That's how it is, however, uh, when it comes to any relationship with another person. We begin with trust based on what we've already seen. And as we get to know the person more and more, our trust grows. It's like when I started dating Josie. I saw some qualities in her. I trusted in those qualities and we went forward in our relationship. I didn't ask her to to produce identity documents. I didn't ask her to take a battery of psychological exams. She probably wishes maybe she'd have done that. Me? But I trusted in what I saw, what I knew, and then that trust and that credibility grows and grows and grows as you get to, to know the person. Well, God is a person. God invites us to know him through Jesus Christ, this person, and to trust what he's revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And as we know Jesus, that trust grows and grows and grows. Not that we are never challenged or shaken in our faith. But if we know Christ, we have a bedrock sense of he is who he says he is. Any form of knowledge really starts with trust. Even scientific knowledge starts with a form of trust. There's a there's a Nobel laureate in physics named Eugene Wigner. He wrote in a famous essay. He talked in this essay about how the scientist has to proceed on faith. Isn't that interesting? He said there's an article of faith that every scientist has to believe in. And that is the usefulness of math. To explain the natural world, there's no rational reason. There's no reason why math should make the natural world intelligible, he says. It's just an article of faith. You can't prove that math does that, but it does that. And so you proceed based on believing that. And and this is the quote from Eugene Wigner. He said, there is no rational explanation for the usefulness of mathematics to the natural sciences. It is, quote, an article of faith. So even science has to proceed to some degree on trust, on commitment, 
And, and, and so what Jesus is criticizing this crowd is, is, he, is he's criticizing them for not trusting in what he's already revealed to them and instead of demanding more and more proof. There was another factor in their unbelief. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they expected. He did not fit their framework. Uh, I, I think they, came, they expected the Messiah to come riding on, on clouds straight from heaven in a vision of great glory to overthrow the Roman Empire as a military ruler. And instead, this Messiah comes from Nazareth. And so they have a problem with that. They even say in verse uh, verse 42, after Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they say, wait a second. (laughs) Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? We know this Jesus. We know his parents. Our kids went to synagogue school with him. We have a table in our house that he built. He was the carpenter. How can he now say that he is from heaven? It it shattered their framework, their preconceptions of who the Messiah was was to be. And I think we can be kind of sympathetic. They're wrestling with this great mystery that we still wrestle with over 2000 years. Uh, We've been wrestling with the reality that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So they're trying to wrap their minds around that. But Jesus isn't asking them to solve that problem. He's just saying, I want you to trust what you've already seen and heard from me. You don't have to figure everything out. Just proceed on the evidence that's right in front of you. This is the work of God. Verse 28, he says, to believe in whom he sent. This is how I want you to respond. Believe and trust in what you've seen and heard from me. So these are some factors in unbelief. Demand for absolute certainty before you're willing to make a commitment and an unwillingness to uh, adjust your framework, your expectation of who Jesus is, an unwillingness to do that in the face of the picture of Jesus that we have right in front of us in the pages of Scripture. And I wonder if any of us have ever been tempted in, in those ways towards unbelief. You know, uh, we talk about those who are outside of the faith and and their struggles with belief. But as Christians, the weeds of unbelief can still grow up. We have to be aware of our own thoughts, our own minds and what's going on in our own heart. And we need to trust what God has given us. This this passage of Scripture is a challenge for us to trust in Jesus Christ as he's been revealed here. Some Christians are tempted to demand more and more proof from God. Some Christians do want to sign before they make a deeper commitment, before before they launch out, maybe in ministry, they'll demand a, a, a sign from God rather than trusting what he's already done in their life and what he's revealed in the pages of Scripture. It's not that we don't ask God to give us more and more. We, it's not that we don't want to see God do great and extraordinary things in our day, but we don't put God to the test and we don't say to God, I'm not going to trust you unless you prove yourself. He's proved himself in Jesus Christ. He's done a work in our life and we can trust that. Some people may may be tempted to not trust completely in the Jesus of the Bible because he doesn't meet their expectations. He doesn't fit the framework. Jesus says things in, in the Gospels that are contrary to what much of our culture tells us is right when it comes to religion. Our, our culture teaches that all paths lead to God and Jesus says in John 14, no, I'm the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Are we willing to trust this Jesus in the pages of Scripture? Or do we have to try to revise Jesus to fit our framework? No, that's idolatry, really, if you create 
Jesus in your own image and according to your own presuppositions. The challenge is to believe what has been revealed and to push through these barriers of unbelief. So, uh, that's what this passage, I think, has to tell us about unbelief and some of the factors involved. But it also has this, uh, tells us something about belief. Really, it teaches us the fundamental way people come to belief in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God. It is a work of God. This is what Jesus teaches here very clearly. Look at what he says, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Before we come to Christ, the Father has already given us to Christ. The Father is not going to let the mission of His Son fail. He is going to give His Son a people, a church, a bride. If we believe in Christ, we are privileged to be part of that body, part of that gift. God the Father is not going to let the precious blood of His Son shed on the cross go to waste. All the Father gives me will come to me. And that happens as the Father draws people to the Son. This is what Jesus says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that word for draw was used for like towing a ship, or dragging a cart, raising a sail on a boat. This is the work that the Father does. He draws people to the Son. And, the, and, and as Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And He offers that to the world. The Father draws people to Jesus to say, here's what you're hungry for. Here's who you're thirsty for. Here is where you're going to find ultimate soul satisfaction. That is a work of God. And so the number one thing, this this is what this means. The number one thing we can do for our unbelieving friends, like the friend I discussed at the beginning, friends and family, is what? Pray. Pray that God would draw them to the Son. Pray that things would happen in their life where they would begin to see that they're still hungry and they're still thirsty and they would begin to hear the words of Jesus. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never go hungry again. You'll never thirst. Pray that God draws them. Pray that God softens their hearts and their minds. Yes, there there are reasons we need to give. I'm not saying that we don't give reasons. We need to do that. We need to show that our faith is reasonable. There's evidence. We need to live our life in a way that backs up what our testimony is. Paul in Ephesians in that text today calls us to imitate God as beloved children. We want to show the world that we belong to God. We're his children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a there's a vertical dimension to this living a life of faith and a horizontal dimension. There's a witnessing dimension. And then our life is to be an act of worship to God. We are to live our life in a way that backs up our testimony. We are to give reason. But the only way that somebody's going to come to the father, Jesus says, is if God does a work in their heart. And that's where the prayer comes in. And so who do you know in your life who needs to come to faith? One thing I was, I was thinking about and, and kind of convicted as I worked through this is, is uh, oftentimes when I'm in this dialogue with this friend or other people, I think if I can just get the right 
answer to their question. If there's a, I need to find the silver bullet. And I know that's not right, but there's that temptation to just kind of let the keyboard fly here. And I'm going to just tell you how it is. God saying, put more time and energy into praying for that person rather than trying to always have the right answer. Because until that heart is softened, because we're really naturally in our fallen state, we don't want much to do with God. We don't need God, we think. We don't want to acknowledge we're sinners. We don't want an authority over us. And so it takes the work of God to draw people to Christ. I wonder if you can look back on your life and see how God drew you to his son. The circumstances in your life, the situations in your life, the people in your life, the parents, the grandparents, the pastors, the mentors, the teachers, experiences of crises that God used to point you to the Son, experiences of beauty, maybe, of awe, the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit, all these factors that God used to, like like a cart, pull us to the Son, Jesus Christ. If that has happened in our life, Give thanks to God for it. It's a gift that he's given to us. It's not that we're better, smarter, more moral than anybody else. We've been given this gift. And in humble gratitude, we need to acknowledge that that's what it is. And thank God that we're privileged to be part of this body that he's given to his son. And if you know those who don't believe, pray that God would give them this faith. So that's the factor. That's the main factor is the work of God in people's hearts and minds. And then finally, we're reminded here of why it matters. The consequences of belief or unbelief. It's a question of eternal life or death. Jesus says that here several times. For the one who believes in him, the one who comes to him, I will raise him up on the last day. Talking about resurrection on the day of judgment. Jesus is emphatic here that he's talking about life beyond this life, eternal life that begins here and now, but endures for eternity. He makes a clear comparison between the bread that the fathers ate in the in the, uh, the, the, the manna that the fathers ate in the wilderness. He says in verse forty nine, but they still died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We'll talk about that more next week. Unpack that imagery a little bit more. But it's clear Jesus is making this promise. If you come to me, if you're united to me by faith, you're going to have eternal life. God's life is eternal. Jesus is that life. When we're connected to that life, we have eternal life. Our culture doesn't really know what to do with death. We get all sorts of recommendations about how to live longer. That's really our culture's answer. Just prolong what you have. We have no answer for what happens after. So we get all sorts of recommendations. My wife has signed us up to get vegetables from a farmer every week. And one of the things I've been enjoying lately are uh, fresh chili peppers from the garden. So I was encouraged to see this week an article that came out that said that people who eat spicy foods live longer. <laughs> if you eat chili peppers, you're going to live longer. Here, here's a quote from this article. People who ate spicy food once a week, listen to this, had a 10% reduced risk of death. <laughs> How do they, I don't know, forever? I'm presuming over a certain period of time they're talking. 
but that's that's where the article left it. So, you know, this comes and goes. You know, don't eat butter. Eat butter. It's okay. All these recommendations of how to live longer, how to exercise, how much exercise you need, how to measure your water intake, and hope is of extending life. It's all that's all part of it. Trying to avoid the inevitable. Do we trust Jesus' words? Whoever comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the real fountain of youth. Jesus takes the sting out of death. Jesus connects us to the eternal love of God. A love that has been going on forever and will go on forever. And he brings us into that love, that fellowship, that friendship. And he's not going to let his friends go away. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. This is why it matters, because those who reject Jesus don't have this hope and they face a Christless, godless eternity. So let's recommit ourselves. Let's recommit ourselves to praying for those without this hope. Let's commit ourselves to believing and trusting in the words of Christ. These are, as we sang, words of power that will never fail. Let the truth of these words prevail over unbelief in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do that for us, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word. In this passage of scripture, we hear the promise that anyone who comes, anyone who comes can have life. And yet before we come, you've been at work. And so there's that mystery there. We receive it as a mystery. But we do pray that you'd help us to be part of bringing people to the life of Christ. Remind us even now of of people on our hearts and minds who who resist you. Help us to pray that uh, their minds would be softened, their hearts would be softened. Thank you, God, for the gift of salvation that you've given to us. It is a gift. We receive it as such and we acknowledge that apart from your work, we would be lost and hopeless. Thank you so much for your gift of salvation in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.